Well, as I've begun ministry here at First Point, I've been wrestling with this question. What could most realistically kill our gospel witness? If you think that's a dark, pessimistic question, I'm right there with you. <laughs> I'm an off-the-charts optimist. I pump sunshine into everything that I see, so I get it. But as fellow members, saints who God has charged to protect and promote our gospel witness in this city, I think it's a good question for us to consider. So, if you were Satan, how would you try to demolish and deconstruct our gospel witness here in this neighborhood? Or maybe another way you could think about it is, what's the most likely path our church could go down and lose its gospel witness? Now, I'm new here, and so I could be wrong, but I don't think it would be denying gospel doctrine. I don't think that's what we are most tempted towards. For my short time here, I don't think we're in immediate danger of denying the doctrine of grace alone for salvation. I at least don't feel that temptation. And I'm pretty confident that Jeff doesn't feel that temptation either. I mean, I've heard Jeff teach. You've heard Jeff teach. I think it's more likely that Jeff becomes a trapeze artist and joins the circus than him becoming a false prophet or a false preacher. As we finish our series in Jonah this morning, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty confident that we'll keep teaching the biblical themes in Jonah 1 through 3. That we need to obey God's word. That salvation belongs to the Lord. That God's judgment is on anyone who does not repent. I'm not nervous about upholding those biblical themes and those doctrines. Here's what I'm nervous about. Whether I'll apply Jonah chapter 4. Whether I'll pity fellow sinners and see them through the lens of mercy. For a church like ours, a church that prizes sound, theologically robust doctrine, what do I think is the most likely path for us to lose our gospel witness? Preaching mercy for our relationship with God, but not applying mercy with our relationship with other people. This is what happened to Jonah. He praised God for his own salvation in chapter 2, didn't he? And he faithfully preached God's word in chapter 3. He just didn't apply God's mercy to the Ninevites in chapter 4. Actually, after God relents from the disaster with the Ninevites, Jonah's ticked. He's livid. Read with me in Jonah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. 
For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to, jo to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Like every chapter in the book of Jonah, Chapter 4 wants us to reflect on the mercy of God. I think that's super clear. His pity for the undeserving. That's where we're headed. What I've been trying to understand, though, over the past couple weeks thinking about this passage, is why did Jonah get so angry? What's so infuriating about mercy? And why did he get so worked up about a plant? That's not as clear, but as I've been digging into that question, I think the Spirit has showed me a mercy that I desperately need. He's shown me a mercy that I think we all, as a church, desperately need to be effective witnesses to the merciful character of God. So that's what I want us to do this morning, is just to walk through that question together. Why did Jonah get so angry? Looking at verses 1 through 5, why does Jonah get angry about mercy? The text makes it super clear that that's what he's angry about, right? When God showed mercy to the Ninevites in chapter 3, verse 10, chapter 4, verse 1 says, It displeased him exceedingly, and he was angry. Then verse 2, he's like, I knew it. I knew you were going to do that, God. I knew you were going to get all merciful on the Ninevites. It'd be better for me to just die. This is not a good look for our prophet Jonah, is it? Before we judge him too quickly, let's be fair about one thing. The Ninevites were bad folks. Maybe the worst. Ancient literature tells us that they were known 
for torturing their enemies. That was their reputation. Like we know Italy for its pizza and the Swiss for their banking, the ancient Near East thought of the Ninevites for their torture, and for good reason. The Ninevites' violence was unusually brutal. One of their favorite tactics was to pluck out the eyes, to gouge out the eyes of their enemies, cut off their limbs, and then set them loose. To be sort of walking billboards for how cruel they were. This was the violence that chapter 3, verse 8, is implying when the Ninevite king says for the people to turn away from their violence. That's the kind of violence that he's talking about. Brutality was what they did. It was their way of life. The smoke in their clothes. So while I hope I'd have a different response, I can see myself being skeptical about their repentance in chapter 3, if I was Jonah. Is this repentance genuine? I mean, I'm sure they repent now. Sure they're not doing violence now. God's judgment is over their heads. But what happens when that threat of judgment is taken away? Oh, I bet you they'll return to their evil ways. I bet you they'll return and revert back to their violence. That's what I would be thinking if I was Jonah. And you know what? That's what happens. That's actually what happens. We don't know exactly when they revert back to the, their old ways, but the book of Nahum, which was written about a hundred years later, shows us that Nineveh belittles God and returns to their violence. The brutality ramps back up. And particularly, God's people suffer because of the Ninevites' violence. And what's been difficult for me to process about this whole thing that I've just said is that God knew this was going to happen. He was not surprised when the Ninevites return to their violent, wicked ways. He's all-knowing. So the questions that I've been wrestling with is, why does he relent in chapter 3, verse 10? And even more provocatively, why does he feel pity for this city when he knows they're going to return to their violence? I've struggled with that question this week. I think our minds could get, our minds could wrap around a mercy that shows the Ninevites becoming long-term allies of God's people. If they joined the United Nations and ran youth camps for underprivileged Israelites. I think we could understand that kind of mercy. If we neuter God's mercy and limit his kindness for bad people who become great people, we can get on board with that kind of mercy. God making the sun rise and sending rain for the unjust who eventually become just. That makes sense. But God makes the sun rise on the just and the unjust. 
He gives rain to the just and the unjust. Matthew 5, 45. How do you feel about that? How does that make you feel? Sunrises. Beautiful sunrises in South Florida for proponents of abortion who will never change their mind. Life-giving rain for racists who will never repent. Kindness to the ungrateful who will never feel grateful. God feeling pity for a city that will return to their violence. That's tough for me to process. I'll just be honest. It knocks us off balance, or at least it should. If God's mercy hasn't unsettled you recently, if it hasn't made you feel uncomfortable, you've probably diluted God's mercy into something that's just more palatable, something safe. There's a good chance that you've made judgment the lead actor in the movie and mercy the best actor in a supporting role. To be clear, God's mercy, divine mercy, doesn't deny final judgment. We'll look at that later. God will by no means clear the guilty, Nahum chapter 1 verse 2. And we need to judge a righteous judgment. That's biblical. But the first part of Nahum 1-2 says God is slow to anger. James 2-13, which was read earlier, says that mercy triumphs over judgment. Lamentations 3-33 says God doesn't afflict from his heart. God says in Ezekiel 18 verse 32 that he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Jonah 4.2 says God is quick to mercy and slow to anger. You could say he's mercy dominant. Like our hands, our feet have a preference of which one we start off with. You all have a go-to foot. If you're going to start walking or running somewhere, there's, statistically speaking, a foot that you like to go to first. For me, that's my right foot. I know you were super curious about that. That's not important. What's more important that you may not know about me is that between mercy and judgment, I'm judgment dominant. I'll just be honest with you. Apart from grace, when I approach you all, I step first towards judgment. How well have you treated me? How good are you? How bad are you? I'm judgment dom dominant. Not God. No, he's mercy dominant. That's how he approaches the worst sinners. The very worst. The people who have hurt you the most, the people who have caused you the greatest pain. He's mercy dominant. 
that's his first step. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's what the Bible says. But how does that make you feel? Does it make you angry? For me, it sometimes makes me angry. Why do you think, though? Why do you think God's mercy can be so painful to consider and can actually cause us to be angry like Jonah? I think our passage is pretty clear. It's because it grates against our self-righteousness. Why did Jonah celebrate his salvation in chapter 2 and then mourn the Ninevite salvation in chapter 4? It's because of his self-righteousness. He downplayed his rebellion in chapter 1, perhaps exalting his ministry in chapter 3. The reality is he must have just seen himself as a better candidate for salvation to rejoice over his own salvation, but to mourn the Ninevites' salvation. He must have seen himself as more righteous than he actually was, more deserving of God's kindness. And so, when God showed the Ninevites great kindness, God's mercy was like nails on the chalkboard of Jonah's self-righteous heart. I don't think anyone in here would claim perfection. I'm not claiming perfection. I don't think anyone of you is claiming perfection. But we all have this Jonah-like tendency to see ourselves as more righteous than we actually are. We're all prone to self-righteousness. Which I think is what leads us to frustration, leads us to anger when bad people get the better sunrises. When bad people get the job promotion. When bad people get the better house or the happier family. When your undeserving little brother gets the party that you deserve. In Jonah 3, we saw how there are just so many similarities between the story of Jonah and God's mercy to the Ninevites and the parable in Luke 15 of the two sons. How the father saw his disobedient son a long way off, ran to him with compassion, and threw him a party. It's an incredible picture of how God is quick to mercy and slow to anger. But as the parable continues in Luke 15, Jesus introduces us to a new scene with a new character. The Jonah-like, self-righteous, older son. Luke 15, starting in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. And refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, 
who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. Dad, I've served you for years. I'm the righteous one. I'm the one who took care of the goat that you just brought over for a party for my sexually immoral younger brother. And you're inviting me to his party? You've got to be joking. No, I'll just stay outside. No thanks. This was the self-righteousness that drove Jonah out of the city of Nineveh. In chapter 4, verse 5. After God shows the Ninevites mercy, verse 5 says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. While Nineveh is inside the city celebrating God's mercy, where's Jonah? He's outside, fuming. This is what self-righteousness does. By elevating our own righteousness, we separate ourselves from the community of sinners and turn them into monsters. Miroslav Volf has this very insightful quote. He says, Hidden in the dark chambers of our hearts and nourished by the system of darkness, hate grows and seeks to infest everything with its hellish will to exclusion. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence of the God of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion, without transposing the enemy from the sphere of monstrous hum inhumanity into the sphere of shared humanity, and herself from the sphere of proud innocence into the sphere of common sinfulness. By excluding himself from the community of sinners, Jonah excluded the Ninevites from the community of humans. Scrolling down his Facebook feed, he was fascinated with the thought of God judging these monstrous Ninevites. Being quick to anger, slow to mercy, he intentionally, purposefully, misrepresented the character of God. As a prophet, Jonah wasn't unclear about who God was. No, he was super clear about that. We see in verse 2, he quotes Exodus 34, the verse that gives a window into the heart of who God is. When Moses asks to see God and God unveils that he's quick to mercy and slow to anger. Here's the point. Jonah knew about the true God. He just didn't like him. That's not the God that he wanted to represent. He wanted a God made in his own image. A God who celebrated his own righteousness and condemned those he deemed less righteous. Because of Jonah's self-righteousness, he wanted a God who was quick to anger. 
That's not the God we preach here. But is that the God that you want? Is that the God that I want? A God that celebrates my own righteousness? And in that backdrop, I want him to be quick to anger? That's where my heart often goes. Too often, I prefer to turn in my C-minus work as opposed to Christ's A-plus work. Why would I want to do that? I know that I'm turning in less than perfect work when I have Christ's A-plus work to plead for me before the Father. Why would I want to bring my C-minus work before God? Why do I keep doing that? I think it's pretty simple, actually. It's because while C-minus isn't that great, at least I get some credit. You see what I'm saying? It's not that I've forgotten about the work of Christ on my behalf. No, I remember, I know what I have in Christ. The reality is, is I want to celebrate my imperfect work. And I want others to celebrate my imperfect work. And I would rather have a God who quickly judges the F's because a C minus doesn't look that bad next to an F, right? That kind of God, if he was that kind of God, would make me look better. And that's who I sometimes honestly want. A God who makes me look better. Now, I'm not going to preach that kind of God, but sometimes that's the God my heart wants, the kind of God that I reflect. What about you? What about us as a church? Does your life testify to a God who's quick to mercy or a God who's quick to anger? Your relationship with family members, coworkers, neighbors, your social media feeds, your conversations about other church members who have wronged you, your judgments about other churches in the city, your assessment of non-Christians. Do those aspects of your life testify to a God who's quick to mercy or a God who's quick to anger? Here's what makes this question harder for us to apply is that I think most people outside of the church naturally assume that we are quick to anger and slow to mercy. That's their natural assumption, I think. Whether that's fair or not, whether that's fair to church history, whether that's fair to how you're living your life, I think most people in this community around First Point assume that we are quick to judgment and slow to mercy. When people drive by most churches on Sunday mornings, here's what I think. They're thinking in the back of their minds. Those people probably think they're better than me. If they heard about my sinful lifestyle, I think they would be quick to judgment. I don't think they would actually hear my story. I don't think they would show me mercy. At least it wouldn't be quick. It would probably be slow. I think that's how most people perceive churches in America. 
So the challenge for us is we've got our work cut out for ourselves, don't we? If we're going to change that caricature, it's going to take hard, hard work. But what if, what if instead of detaching ourselves from this city, removing ourselves from this community like Jonah did, what if we worked hard and moved closer? What if we moved closer to them, showing them how quick our God is to mercy and how he's slow to anger? What if we reversed the narrative that our community has written about this church? What if the LGBTQ plus community thought of First Point as a church that was quick to mercy and slow to anger? That yes, sure, they've heard from us, they've, we've walked through Romans 1 with them, their sinful lifestyle, their sinful sexual lifestyle is not consistent with a genuine disciple of Christ, just like their other sins in their life. They've heard that from us. But that's not the first thing they think about us. What if the first thing that they thought about us was, my goodness, that church is quick to mercy. What if the teenagers in our church graduated and went off to college or to work and as they thought back on their parents and as they thought about the members in this church, the first thought they had was that church was quick to mercy. They were slow to anger. What if the members in our church when we've sinned against each other, which will happen. We all sin against each other. That's the reality. So what if instead of mentally dragging each other into our personal courtrooms of judgment, what if we invited those members over to our house for dinner? Quickly. Quick to mercy and slow to anger. Give some thought this week of how you can reflect this extravagant and explosive mercy? What does quick to mercy mean for your relationships at work, at home, in your neighborhoods? How you think and talk about Christians in the news and in the community? And give some thought how you can share the message of God being quick to mercy in the person and work of Jesus Christ with unbelievers that are around you. We'll talk about that more later. But for now, let's talk about plants. Let's talk about plants for a little bit. Second question, why does Jonah get angry about the plant? What's up with that? I mean, I like plants. But my goodness, verse 6 says that he was exceedingly glad about this plant. Like, Jonah is pumped up about this plant. That's what the chapter is supposed to tell you. Like, he is ecstatic about this singular plant. And when it was taken away, verse 9 says, he was angry enough to die. That's dramatic. What's going on, Jonah? <laughs> Why so moody? 
I think the first point relates to the second point. Jonah's angry about the plant for the same reason he's angry at mercy. He's self-righteous. Deep down, he thinks he deserves the plant. Like the older brother in the parable, he's the one who served God. He's the righteous one. Mercifully, God puts his finger on Jonah's self-righteousness, his entitled spirit in verse 10. He says, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. Jonah, you didn't even buy the seeds at Home Depot. You didn't even water the plant, and you're angry about this? To save you from your discomfort, I was the one who appointed this plant out of mercy. And whether you recognize it or not yet, I took it away out of mercy too. So I could show you your self-righteous anger. Jonah, you're angry about losing something that you never deserved in the first place. I wonder, how much of our anger could really just be traced back to our self-righteousness. Not always, of course, but here's what I've found to be generally true. Where there's the smoke of anger, there's a fire of self-righteousness. This is totally a fictional story, so just remember that. Totally fictional. This is not true. I did not do this. But imagine me getting angry about assembling a piece of Ikea furniture. Again, remember, fictional story here, guys. A picture of me putting together a crib the wrong way, like totally the wrong way. Realizing my mistake, recognizing I've got to do this whole thing over again. Again, remember, fictional story here. But imagine my sweet wife, Leah, coming in, seeing me angry, and asking a question that goes something like this. Do you do well to be angry? Yes. <laughs> really? Yes, angry enough to die. <laughs> I'm the one who's using his day off to put together this crib. I'm the one serving this family. I serve, and I serve, and I serve, and what do I get? Confusing Ikea instructions. I don't deserve this. Yes, I do. I deserve death and hell. That's what we all deserve. What your sin has earned we often forget this, don't we? We wake up each morning and our default setting is entitlement. And if we don't rewire our brains, we get angry when our plants are taken away. When passing pleasures like a good boss, a good friend, or good traffic are taken away from us. It may be worth reviewing with a church member or with a family member this week, your anger, and seeing if your anger can be traced back to your 
self-righteous heart. And then reflect together over lunch that you don't deserve to have that lunch. <laughs> you deserve to be in hell. But there you are, eating a cheeseburger. That's a mercy. <laughs> and if the s server makes the egregious mistake of putting American cheese instead of pepper jack cheese on your hamburger, you didn't deserve cheese to begin with. We laugh, but we should be experiencing eternal judgment right now. Every single one of us. We don't deserve to be in this room. If it weren't for a merciful God who has pity for sinners who don't know their right hand from their left, if it wasn't for that God who has pity for sinners like you and like me, chapter 4, verse 11, God tells Jonah, And should not I pity Nineveh, the gr that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Mercy is bad news for the Jonah-like self-righteous. But it is good news for the Ninevite-like sinners who know they need saving. If you recognize the seriousness of your sin this morning, let me tell you some good news. There's a prophet that's greater than Jonah. Jesus, the full revelation of a God who's quick to mercy and slow to anger. And when he looked out on a city full of sinners, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, Matthew 9, 36. When this prophet looked on the Romans who were known for their torture, and he looked out on a people who had been crying out for his crucifixion, he prayed to God to forgive them because they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know the right hand from their left. And on the cross, he felt pity for his executioners. That's our God. That's our Jesus. He feels pity for you. He feels compassion for you, no matter who you are or what you've done. He's mercy dominant. His first step towards you is mercy. He sees the worst about you, and his first step towards you is mercy. He offers to take the punishment your sins deserve. You just have to ask. It's unfair. It's totally unfair. You don't deserve his mercy. But it is just. It is perfectly just, actually. It's at the cross we see the unity of God's mercy and justice on full display. The gospel of mercy breaks every rule of fairness, but, does, but it doesn't relax 
any law of justice. At the cross, Jesus gave us what we don't deserve, breaking every rule of fairness. But he also took the punishment we deserved, not relaxing any law of justice. He will punish sin, every sin, either on the cross or in hell. Like he's pouring out his anger right now on any Ninevites who didn't trust in the Lord for salvation. If you've been wondering how God's mercy squares with his justice, justice has been or will be satisfied for every sexual sin, racism, greed, gossip, lying, and every other sin. But as you recognize that, don't forget that he's quick to mercy. Jonah 4, verse 2. He's slow to anger. Is this the Jesus that you're following? Is this the Jesus that you want? Is this the Jesus your life testifies to? If you're sensing that you're not testifying to that kind of Jesus, to the true Jesus, if you're realizing this morning that you're more like Jonah, more like the older brother in the parable, it's not too late to change your mind. Pretty sure Jonah did. Why do I think that? Because we have this book. Just think about it. Some of the interactions between Jonah and God wouldn't be told unless Jonah recounted them, right? They're personal interactions that no one else heard. And so if Jonah stayed angry at God for his mercy, if he dug in his heels and he never repented of his self-righteousness, why would he want to publicize his unrighteousness for the whole world to see? That doesn't make any sense. No, I think the only plausible explanation for the book of Jonah, for hearing about these interactions that showcased Jonah's unrighteousness, I think the only plausible explanation is that Jonah changed his mind. After chapter 4, I don't know when, but I think Jonah repented of his self-righteousness. And so what we have in the book of Jonah is the confessions of an old prophet who eventually repented of his self-righteousness, who later in his life eventually grabbed hold of the mercy of God and let his story of self-righteousness become a testimony to the mercy of God. What if God did that in this room this morning? Long-term church attenders confessing their self-righteousness after this service and embracing the undiluted, tender, and explosive mercy of God. It's not too late. Whether you're a teenager or a young mom or a senior citizen, you can let your self-righteousness become a story of God being quick to mercy and slow to anger. That's what happened with Jonah. May that happen for you too. Let's pray. Father, you 
should come to me in judgment, but you are a God who is quick to mercy. Father, you should come to every single one of us with judgment, but you are a God who is quick to mercy, and we do, like Jeff prayed earlier, we praise you for who you are. Father, I ask that as we consider your mercy in light of our unmerciful hearts, as we consider our own self-righteousness, I ask that you would do a profound work of conviction and of repentance in my heart and in the hearts of my brothers and sisters here this morning. Perhaps in those who have not my brothers and sisters yet, who are not Christians, who have recognized that they are desperately self-righteous and they have not embraced the mercy of Christ. Father, I ask that that confession would lead to genuine repentance and a, a holding on of a mercy that is not safe, but it is so, so sweet and can set us free, set our church free, that can make our church into more effective, more faithful witnesses to your merciful character. I ask for you to do all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen.